Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Thank you for dropping in. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Diane Dewey, and I know that busy schedules get in the way of meeting folks we want to talk to. Dropping in is a lost art. When I was a kid, my parents would sometimes go over to the neighbor's house, or vice versa, just dropping in on them. Or we'd be hanging out and somebody would knock on the door, and right away, it was a fun surprise. Where I live now on the Gulf Coast of Florida, I sometimes don't see our neighbor friends. Our digital lives haven't made it any easier. Instead, it's more complicated. It's time to drop in and see what folks are up to. We'll do a deep dive into the subject at hand. We're dropping in to find out what makes our guests tick. Artists, musicians, and writers who have discovered how to make a statement, perhaps one that goes against the grain. Making a contribution to the world is a tough enough goal, but here are people who've come at it, usually the hard way, and won. We'll listen to their diverse stories about identity. Identity can refer to biological, nurtured, gender, cultural, racial, spiritual, and other labels we've assigned ourselves. Insider, outsider, hipster, square, or nerd. Sometimes the I in identity gets lost. Everyone wants to become our authentic selves, despite the odds against it. We each have a context to work in, whether it's in our family of origin, an adoptive family, or maybe a marriage. That makes maintaining identity the call to rediscover and reclaim who we are all the more challenging. For me, that call came when, at 47 years old, I got a letter from my Swiss biological father. Having always known I was adopted from a German orphanage at age one, I faced his question, would I like to meet him? I would, I said. And why, don't, why did I agree to it? Maybe I was filling a void. My beloved adoptive father, who taught me how to build a barbecue by hand with bricks, had just died six months before. I'd ended a long-term relationship with a man who drove me crazy for wanting to be something that I was not. And now I was ready for a new anchor, That letter started me on a 16-year journey of learning my roots and discovering a new identity. I visited Switzerland, my paternal homeland, and went cross-country skiing in the Engadine Valley with my biological father, Otto. He'd done 16 ski marathons. I was petrified. The sweat poured out of me. But I told myself I could keep up. Maybe it was to please him. The Angadine is a special place, very raw, very rural, remote and untouched, where the old Latinate language Romanche is still spoken. It's almost extinct. This struck me as being like I was, far, far away from whom I'd become as an art gallery assistant in New York, and maybe who who I'd been would die off to make for another personality. My biological identity had been bescreened obscured before. But now, back in my father's homeland, I had revelations, aha moments even. Why had I gone to Vermont years before and become a cross-country skier? Had my genetic coding been unspooling all along? What else would I learn about myself that had been hidden? Otto and I visited my biological mother's family in northern Germany. We'd learned that Helena, sadly, had passed away before I could meet her, but the family showed me pictures in an old, musty-smelling leather album. In the photos, Helena wore brightly patterned outfits that she'd sewn herself. I thought back to my teenage years when I told my adoptive mother that I had to have sewing lessons to make the kinds of clothes I wanted. It was another uncanny connection with biological identity, but that's not all. It turns out that although Helena had actually died in 1987, it was not before she has taken, had taken a job in the orphanage 
to be with me that first year of my life. Not before she had met a U.S. serviceman stationed in Germany and had moved with him to America, where they settled in Rochester, New York, one state away from where I grew up in Pennsylvania, unbeknownst to her. Not before she searched for me all her life in both Germany and America, and then not before she somehow learned of my whereabouts in this closed adoption and arrived at my family home near Philadelphia. She was turned away at the door. Helena's family told us these stories. And because I'd been curious, even obsessive, I'd read about adopted children and how our identities can forever be questioned. Stories about our origins abound, but are they true? What binds us to the truth? I learned that in the foundling homes in the United Kingdom during the 1900s, if a woman left her infant child there, she would also have given a small trinket to be with them. These talismans might be a ball of yarn, a coin, or a shard of pottery, whatever the mother had at hand to connect her to her child. If she returned, the token would reunite her with her daughter or son, but more often, The child grew older with the locket or the stone or the small metal coin in their pocket, all their lifetimes sometimes, as a remembrance of a mother that once was. I'd had no such mementos until now. That late summer day in northern Germany, I found out that Helena's siblings had kept her baby spoon, her pearl earrings, and a grandmother's ring for me. And while I didn't have her and would never have the touch of her hands to my cheek, or the sound of her lilting voice in my ears, through these talismans, I felt I had found Helena's love. It was as though an idea took hold in me that Helena might come back and claim me in another lifetime, if only I held on to these things. When I asked her siblings what made them think they'd ever meet me to save these family artifacts, they said, we just knew. They didn't question their intuition. It was something I'd have to reconnect with, a faith in what I had known all along. If I were to find my inner guidance and stay true to my identity, I'd have to listen to my intuition. In everyday life, I believe there are several reincarnations, inner death, not just externally, but death of the soul. There's a cycle of rebirth and renewal as our old beliefs give way. Just as in a marriage there may be inward divorces, estrangements, and remarriages, in a partnership there can also be rekindling and reuniting. I feel as though my story is about finding love after such a death of the soul. I'd lost the most important man in my life, my adoptive father, but I felt I'd won the lottery with Helena's biological family and Otto's. I knew many others didn't get this chance. And even though it would be years before I pieced together what really happened to put me in that orphanage, I'd gained juice, the strength and validation to move forward. Through meeting biological father, family, I realized that love is the strongest force in the universe. People across the globe will find one another, especially now with the advent of DNA kits. I've also learned that the truth has a special force all its own. It will prevail over deception, no matter what the costs. It's a trust in this world, a world that had been uncertain for me. I'd been told by my adoptive parents that my biological family were dead. Sifting through these layers of deception that were well-intended and meant for my protection is the subject of my book, Fixing the Fates. Suddenly, Neither my heritage nor my destiny seemed no longer decided by others. My identity was formed by parts of all of these people, biological and adopted, but I had also become aware that I was a person I'd created myself. I'd had to ask, who did I imagine myself to be? After I sifted through and located myself, Who I am is who I designate myself to be. The labels I attach myself to were always becoming. And part of this process is to look beyond a traumatic past and push through self-limiting beliefs, often to do a reality check on self-love where every dream is attainable. 
My job was to resist the traps of magical thinking, either too positive or too negative, and to accept that parental love is complicated and paradoxical. Part of my arsenal in this fight was knowledge. With a master's degree of science in mental health counseling, I've tried to unravel my own story. And now, as an award-winning author of Fixing the Fates, I help writers get to where they want to go with their manuscripts. My strength is in analyzing the work, determining whether the intention and the execution match up in the story. I investigate the writer's themes and look at how language carries that out, or doesn't just yet. Writing takes shape in the editing. I've crossed out and replaced all the way along, just like in identity. I've had a year's plus worth of content and copy editing for Fixing the Fates. Reviewing the text and making it as real as life itself is an irresistible urge for me. At Nord Media, I'm aided in this by two ACE editors, one from the world of journalism and one from public relations. You'll find their input indispensable too, and their bios are on our website. To light the way forward towards publishing, we have an on-staff book agent, my fellow writers work to form truth and feelings that we want to polish and share through stories is important. I come out of the art world in New York, where for me, much of the 90s, I worked at the Guggenheim Museum. It was a place of great visual beauty, whether it was painting, sculpture, or video art. Visual arts relate to how you set a scene in creative writing. It's the revelation of our senses, sight, smell, sound, and touch that bring a scene alive. And since we live through our physical bodies and feel instincts there, it's key to listen to them. When the stomach goes into knots, or our breathing gets shallow, or our eyes are squinting, maybe we can't digest what's happening, or relax enough to breathe, or there's some part of the picture that just doesn't add up. Writing is a great way to tune in and access what's happening with ourselves. We make sense of our own thoughts and emotions through laying down words side by side like bricks. There's both left brain logic, and if we can articulate the emotion, the right side feeling forms a whole. It's what I've tried to achieve in fixing the fates, which readers say is like a page-turning novel. I hope that you, too, will find the inspiration to define or redefine yourselves from dropping in. We're skipping the small talk and diving into a subject. We'll meet a musician who's written a Grammy Award-winning song when before his dyslexia delayed even his reading. We'll hear from a best-selling writer who didn't believe in his own strength until he found it through bodybuilding, violence, and finally, sentence building. An author who did things that she swore she'd never do, traveling in an RV, for example, and now she lives there, full-time, on the road, enjoying wanderlust. An American writer living in Qatar who woke up one day to find the rug had been pulled out, and she was no longer that person, that wife. An individual who became a humanitarian when her father, then governor of a southern state, represented all that was evil in racism. Gender-questioning persons for whom birthright is a starting point for the conscious choice of deciding who they are. Important truths about diverse identities always worm their way out. By listening to others get a foothold on who they are and learn about their process is to become more ourselves. I hope you'll take away clues as to how to do this for yourself. You may find the person you've always known and imagined yourself to be. Dropping in guests are people like you and me, but who have shown the world what it means to be an individual, to sift through, create, discard, and reclaim, and to listen to their intuition. Not always easy with all the noise in our busy lives, our yapping brains, our self-judgments, and censorship. Somehow, I never thought I'd have much to say. I wasn't empowered to do so. But others who had more confidence encouraged me that everyone knows a unique truth and has a story to tell.
And now we're empowered to tell those diverse stories. Authors, writers, musicians, and artists have been my teachers on how to arrive at a place that's centered and even brave, especially when the facts around me around me were collapsing. Their creativity is contagious. When we listen to their stories, it's easier to recreate ourselves the way we had intended. We might have gotten derailed by something shiny or hooked on something, a glamorous detour, or focused on something that turned out to be false. These distractions are not failures. They're proof that we're growing. Jim Carrey said that depression occurs when your avatar no longer identifies and buys into who you're trying to be. The psyche knows what's real and what's not. Its signal is whatever becomes vibrant and alive to you. An inexplicable affinity with African drums, for example, an ethnic textile or a poem. We construct identity constantly through an organic process of binge and purge. At Dropping In, we'll explore these diverse stories, what makes people unique and even fascinating. We're done with shoehorning ourselves into preconceived notions of who we should be, being told who we are. We're going to take a short break now, but by listening to others talk about our own paths, ours can become less fearful. You'll get the answers you seek and even the questions you want to avoid. When we return, today's guest is Elizabeth Ann Wood, a noted scholar who discovered that her elderly mother found her own true truth sexually in the role of a dom. You won't want to miss this. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's Manuscript Coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D-media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. If you are a pet owner, you know there's a special connection between us and our pets. They are part of the family. The owners of special breeds also understand the important roles they play. Tune in for Greyhounds Make Great Pets to find out more about one special breed. Hosted by Rory and Kathy Goray, along with TJ Beter, we'll focus on greyhounds, but we'll also cover topics that apply to any pet owner, like animal welfare issues, racing, and more. Listen live Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D. Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back. Today, we're dropping in with Elizabeth Ann Wood, author of the book Bound, a memoir of a daughter, a dom, and an end-of-life story. It's a beautiful book, sensitively told, and very, very enlightening about a lifestyle we may not know much about. I've called today's show Bound and Bonded for the Love of This Daughter and Her Mother. You can reach Elizabeth and buy her book on elizabethannwood.com. Welcome, Elizabeth. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks. Good morning, Diane. It's nice to be here. 
Great. I I know that the question probably in uppermost in everyone's mind, you know, what was it like to discover bondage equipment under your mother's bed? This is not something that we ordinarily experience. And although you're well-versed um, through being an award-winning professor, professor of sociology at Nassau County Communi- Community College, and also a senior strategist with the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, I'm just going to give you this intro here, the nation's only human rights organization working full-time to protect sexual freedom as a fundamental human right. Um, clearly, um, you know, you earned your PhD uh, having written your dissertation about gender, sexuality, and society, which you've written about ever since, thank goodness. Um, and I just want to say you're, you're more than qualified and well-versed to experience um, what you did. And I guess I'd, I'd just love to know both your reactions, but also, you know, whether or not this population, um, this demographic of um, BDSM individuals faces a, a human rights um, threat um, in terms of protection, protecting their sexual freedom. Well, there's what are an your... awful lot packed into that question. So let me um, let me start by just saying that I, I I discovered my mother's sexuality not because I came across um, bondage equipment under her bed, uh, but because she told me about it. She called me up one day, and there's a story I tell in the memoir about her calling to say, "Did you?" She was very excited. Did you know that you could get paid to hurt men, and you don't even have to have sex with them? And she was excited because she had had these really terrible relationships with men earlier in her life, and she wasn't feeling very fond of men, but yet as a straight woman, wanted intimacy and wanted connection. So she discovered dominatrix ads in a copy editing job interview she had gone to, and she called me very excited to ask me if I knew about this. And I did, and I gave her a book about BDSM, and she as far as I know, didn't act on it for a few years. And then she called up again because she was on an online bondage uh, dating service and she wanted help with her profile. So I knew about her sexuality before I encountered it face-to-face through the sex toys in her apartment. But um, many people don't know about their parents' sexuality and they do encounter that moment where, you know, perhaps after a parent has died or when they're sick, they discover the vibrator in the drawer by the bed or they discover the handcuffs um, tucked into the night table or, you know, these can be really disruptive moments for a person because as you were talking about identity in your intro, we have ideas about what our parents' identities are and those stories we, we grow up with and we learn and we, we think about as real don't always represent the whole person that is this parent in our life. So I was really lucky to know about my mother's sexuality through her telling of it instead of discovering it after I could no longer talk about it with her. But the second part of your question about, about rights and about sexual freedom for people involved in BDSM is a really serious one because there are threats to people's freedom when they practice a kind of sexuality that is not mainstream. So, for instance, there have been cases where After a divorce, one parent has been threatened with the loss of custody because of the kind of sexuality they practice, Mm -hmm. or where people have lost jobs uh, because their sexuality has become known. So that is certainly true for people who practice BDSM. There's a lot of stigma around non-mainstream sexuality, even in a society like ours, where we see sex around us all the time in the media. So it it is a very serious issue, and I'm glad you raised it. I, I thought it was something that had to come out front and center because, um, for one thing, I, I don't think people realize it. And secondly, as you just pointed out, it's the the impact can be tremendous on, on, on one's life. And I, I knew, um, of course, from your book that you'd, you'd received the news from your mother conversationally or it evolved in a very organic way conversationally. Um, I guess I still was back on the mental picture of, you know, you entering the apartment. There was a scene where you entered the apartment and actually saw things for the first time. And I, I do think that has a different reverberation. But I, I, I must 
I must say, um, what you just told us uh, really is echoes so true to me um, because I tried to look up, for example, BDSM um, to research our talk and learned that Dr. Ruth, for example, Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the mainstream sexologist, she lumps, you can approach Dr. Ruth with any kind of question you want about sex, but not um, not um, pedophilia and not BDSM. So right away, I thought to myself, holy cow, one is a non-consensual violation of, at a very profound level of the right for physical safety of a child. And the other is a consensual sexual relationship. And I wondered, how did we get to this point where these are so mixed up and lumped together? What what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question. I think because BDSM, to people who don't practice it, can look like violence. And because the idea of consenting to violence simply doesn't make sense to a lot of people. It's hard for non-practitioners to understand that this is, in fact, consensual sexual expression. So, um, for instance, if you've been working for a long time on issues of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and then somebody comes to you and tells you that, they really enjoy being tied up and flogged by their partner. It could be hard to get your head around that. And it's really important for people to be able to make the distinction between consensual sexual expression, including BDSM and non-consensual interactional violence, which is very different. You know, one of the things that I think people could benefit from learning quite a bit about is that consent the negotiation of explicit consent in BDSM relationships is often much healthier than the vaguely bumbling pseudo-negotiation of consent that many of us experience in our ordinary everyday sex lives because BDSM is built on negotiation and consent from the start, kind of from the ground up. It actually can, can be a model it's it's mm-hmm. unfortunate that Dr. Ruth doesn't see it that way. I was unaware of that. I didn't know that she wouldn't answer questions about BDSM. Well, I was struck by it, um, clearly. Yeah. And um, your book really has gone a long way to um, opening my eyes um, to something that I think is stigmatized. And I also uh, relate very much to what you just said in the sense of explicit trust building, um, because I also had a look at... Um, Camp Crucible um, is a mm-hmm. website that you you acknowledge um, your mother partook in this event, and I I I again came away feeling contrary to what I guess we we just absorb through our very judgmental cultures that it, there is so much respect, there is so much explicit boundary setting in the BDSM uh, behavior. And at this camp, it's the mission is to educate people how to, to, to gain the skill sets, to gain the articulation, as well as the physical skill sets, to um, enter into this world safely, compassionately, mutually. Um, and I, I really, I thought that, you know, your book, it truly humanized the experience. And I wondered if that was part of the reason that your mother encouraged you to write the book. I think so. I think, you know, my mother wrote on her own also about her BDSM experience and her coming, so coming of age sexually in her late 50s and 60s. She wrote a few online columns about that before she got very sick. And one of the reasons she wanted to do that was because she wanted other women, particularly older women, to know that there were avenues for pleasure and desire that they might not have considered and and it might, in fact, be more fulfilling than the ones that they had been assuming as natural for most of their lives. So, yeah, she, she definitely encouraged me to write the book and partly because she wanted her story told and partly because she wanted to expand the space for other people to experience their own freedom. 
Mm-hmm. I, I wonder about um, the point counterpoint to you know her having had um, some very passive and and even um, you know relation, unfulfilling relationships with men. Um, and and also a, a sense that in your early life, because you you delve into um, your mother's substance uh, substance abuse with alcohol mm-hmm. early on, and and that she really did kind of depend form dependencies before you know she was sober for I think at least twenty years before she evolved and discovered um, this this um, website that you mentioned. Um, but I wonder about this transition, this transformation from a relatively powerless person into um, what's like kind of a, a cipher for for gaining one's sense of self and agency. Um, do, do you see that equating in in your mother's life? And you know, can that happen for for individuals even now that women are say more liberated or? You know, how does it really work um, now, do you, you think? Know, well, one of the most remarkable things to me as, as her daughter watching this story unfold was that she did, in fact, become a very powerful woman. So I grew up thinking of her as a very wounded person, a, a person who needed a lot of help. She got sober in her 30s. She was sober for about 30 years after that, but that wasn't the end of her dependency, she and I had a very codependent relationship for the whole of my growing up, really, and, and it took a lot of therapy for me in my 20s to develop a, a better relationship with her. I shouldn't say a better relationship, but a relationship that was healthier for me with her and to establish clearer boundaries and, and things like that. And even in her late 50s and 60s when she was practicing BDSM, in her relationships with my sister and I, she often seemed needy and dependent. So it was wonderful to see her have this space in her life where she held the power and she was in control and she felt strong and competent. And I, I wondered several times, and I wonder in the book, I, I, I reflect on this throughout the book, how it was that she could be so needy in some ways and so strong in others, but but that she had that space was really kind of a, a profound thing to see, and to to be able to conceive of her as a person with that kind of power and control was really wonderful. It was a real gift. In fact, I think in the show notes you quote a passage where I mention that being party to her sexuality was not awkward or embarrassing. It was a celebration, and that was a celebration in part because she had this pleasure, but also in part because she finally had a a place in her life where she was strong and in control. So I'm sure that's not unique to her. I'm sure that many women can have that kind of experience. Right. Likewise, you know, it's Mm -hmm. worth saying that, that some of the men that she encountered were men who had a lot of power and control in their lives, and they were looking for spaces to give it up. Right. Where they were looking for spaces where they didn't have to be in control all the time. Right. This is an exchange, right? An exchange of energy, um, exchange of roles. Um, and I think that, you know, it's great that you brought up um, the the sense of vicarious um, pleasure in her liberation because you, you, you talk about um, witnessing her development as a dom had been liberating. You took pleasure in her pleasure it hadn't been an imposition. It's been a liberation. And I, I think that, um, you know, here's a way that we can actually gain a lot of intimacy. At least, you know, we all have dualities. Maybe some of them are not quite as profound. Maybe the dichotomies are not quite as stretched. But I mean, I think here you had a chance to really know your mother's inner life. And that was also a gift. Um, and I, I really, yeah, absolutely. It, it's really very tender. We're going to take a short break again. I'm sorry to interrupt this conversation, but when we come back, we're going to take a look at some of your um, abilities to understand this from an intellectual point of view, as well as personal. Don't go away.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out. Finding the inner story and what you want to say. Developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back with Elizabeth Ann Wood. Dr. Wood has um, a been teaching at Nassau County College in Garden City, New York. She is a doctorate um, from Brandeis University, and she has written critically about gender, sexuality, and society. Welcome back, Elizabeth Wood. Um, it's delightful to talk to you. I, I think it feels as though we, are, we think of ourselves as being so liberal, and yet prevailing misconceptions around the subject of BDSM still exist. Um, I wonder how you address that um, in your studies and in your teaching and in your awareness building. Oh, in in a bunch of ways, I suppose. I mean, going all the way back to my dissertation research, which was on power and interaction in strip clubs, not particularly BDSM related, but another area where there's a lot of misunderstanding about people's agency and power to look at the ways that when men are tipping or when women are dancing, those were the kinds of clubs I was studying, that the interaction is not one directional, that it isn't as uh, stereotyped as, as it's often made out to be, all the way through writing and talking about decriminalization of prostitution and talking in the classroom about issues of sexual violence and consent and identity building and gender expression to the work I did with my mother uh, on a personal level, you know, it's, it's part of my life talking about these issues and thinking about them seriously is, is just part of what I do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, it, and that is to me a wonderful contribution. Um, I, I, I think that back to when you were discussing, um, you know, the, the topic of explicit trust and how in a BDSM relationship, for example, there is so much more communication and intentionality about what will transpire in that exchange. Um, I, it makes it seem at some level, um, you know, I, I have also worked with people, uh, women in the decriminalization of prostitution. It makes it seem somehow more humane than the process of being a sex worker and the sort of relative um, anonymity or distance that that occurs. And yet we have so much 
judgment around these areas. Um, and I, 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 I've read your book, Bound, um, with mesmerizing um, attention because it's so compelling to finally get a human story about someone living this lifestyle. Um, I'm wondering how writing the book has impacted your life, um, you know, in any way uh, for you. Well, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. It's had so much impact in my life. First of all, I guess, the writing of it was a, a process, in a way, of healing from her illness and her death. So she and I had talked when she was sick about a book I might write about her experience, about our relationship, about um, being an older woman and having this kind of unconventional sex life, about having an unconventional sex life while you're sick. You know, those kinds of things seemed intellectually interesting to both of us and personally interesting to both of us. But after she died, there was this wave, uh, like a tidal wave of grief that I had to process. And it took about a year before I started writing, but part of the writing process for me really has been about healing and putting, uh, you know, grief is a very chaotic experience and writing can be a way of putting order around that chaotic experience. So it it had effects like that, that, that still echo through my life. It also has had the effect of opening up a lot of conversations. One of the things I was not really thinking about when I was writing was what would it feel like to have colleagues read this book? So mm-hmm. when I was writing the book, of course, I, I had ideas that it would be published, that it would be out there, people would buy it and read it. But I never thought about what it would feel like for people that I work with, you know, people who may not have known all of these corners of my life to suddenly read it. And I didn't think about that until it was already in the printing process. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was asked in a, on an early podcast um, whether I had ever wondered about what that would be like. And it was the first time I had really thought about it. And, the, you know, the book was just coming out. And I thought, wow, this is awfully late to be considering this question. But, but it's been a really positive experience. So I've had several colleagues read it now. And there is a lot of my own deeply emotional, personal experience, some of it not very flattering, that is revealed, you know, that I, that I tell in the book. And people have overwhelmingly responded to that with generosity, with opening up conversations that, that they've been curious about but not had with other people. So, so on a professional level, it's had that kind of impact. And mm-hmm. then it's also allowed me to have a way to talk to people like you and people I had never met before, your listeners, listeners on other podcasts, people in bookstores, about why it's so important to think about sexuality as we age and and why it's so important to think about sexuality and conversations about it in the context of mother-daughter relationships or in the context of healthcare relationships. Mm -hmm. So it's had had an enormous number of impacts in all kinds of ways. Um, it's, It's been a wonderful experience. I think that it's opened up so many avenues. Um, when you, in reading the book too, the other touching aspect of it is that um, a, a partner and several of them actually of your mother um, in her BDSM uh, relationships actually tended to your mother when she became sick as did you um, and became kind of partners in her, in her caregiving, um, which I just found that just not only enormously touching, but somehow with our very cliched minds, somehow unexpected. Um, It wasn't just about the sex. It wasn't just about the sex. No, in fact, um, one of the things that really moved me was the relationship she had with a person that I'll, that I call Kenny in the book. And, Kenny was an incredibly special lover in her life, at the end of her life particularly. They only met less than a year before she died. Mm -hmm. And Kenny's devotion to her at first puzzled me when she was sick. It it puzzled me at first because she obviously couldn't be very dominant in her illness. Mm -hmm. And the more I watched their relationship and the more I watched the way he cared for her, the more I realized that his devotion was in a sense a form of submission 
to her, the kinds of things he was able to do for her. I think it puzzled him that I couldn't do those things. You know, he would make her root beer floats out of chocolate ice cream that he got from the hospital cafe and diet Coke or diet root beer that he scrounged up from the corner store because that's what she wanted. And Mm -hmm. he did that out of this kind of loving devotion and submission that I couldn't possibly feel. And as the daughter who had grown up with her and had had this experience of her passive aggressiveness and her codependence, I was always struggling with my own feelings of, you know, occasional resentment about her needing something or wanting something. I tell a story in the book about how I would create a ritual before I left where I would put all her things that she needed in a particular order around her so she could reach them. And I would get to the door, I would take off my infection control gown, I'd put on my backpack, and just at that point, she would say, oh, wait, (laughs) you know, she wanted one more thing. I thought I had thought of everything, but I hadn't. And instead of frequently, instead of realizing that really what she wanted was just a few more minutes of connection, what I would feel is, how could you possibly still need something? I've done everything I can do for you. You know, but Kenny would never have responded that way. First of all, Kenny would arrive and he would stay straight through the day, the night, the next day, the next night until he left on the train again at the end of the weekend. But it wouldn't even have occurred to him to feel like her demands were anything other than these, this sign of her, her dominance in his life and that his, his fulfilling them was anything other than his love and his submission. So it, his, his relationship with her really helped me understand some of the nuances of power and submission and also some of the real differences between the kind of love that a daughter might have for a mother and the kind of love that a partner can have. It was really wonderful to watch. It's, it's, it's very endearing. And I think that, you know, Kenny's devotion clearly came from conscious choice. And those of us that have mother-daughter relationships, that is all of us, um, the DNA of those relationships can be um, imperfect. And I, I think you, you talk about this very eloquently in a kind of an analogy with Buffy, right? This is it, it's sort of, um, it's an analogy, um, the, the, you know, the, the show, um, no matter what, I'm always Buffy, the chosen one. Yeah. I, can, I, I alone can save my mother from disaster. At least that's how it feels. So, you know, you, like any daughter, you had put an enormous onus on yourself, whereas you know, you, with her partner, he, this devotion would be, you know, a conscious kind of willingness. Um, and it's, it's just told so endearingly in the book. And I, I just want one more passage that I can, because I loved also the fact that you interject humor. Um, and this is to oh, Thank you. There was a lot of funniness in the story. <laughs> It, it, this is here. So now she's got the equipment. That, so the routine disarray of her apartment and to all the accumulated bondage equipment and sex toys, my mother added catheters, machines, and miles of tubing. She, didn't, she wasn't even shy about her dialysis machine or the tube draining into the bathtub when she had overnight guests. Sex often involves dealing with bodily fluids one way or another, and she saw these as no different. I mean, this is, this is incredible. That was definitely boring. true. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was so sweet about my mother is that she saw, she really did see very little difference between the kinds of things one had to deal with, with her dialysis and the kinds of things one might deal with, with sex. And in fact, in the way that she practiced her sex life, many of the kinds of equipment were the same. So in addition to her just having very porous boundaries as a human being to start with, the boundaries between medical care and sexuality ended up blurring quite a lot too, and in some kind of funny ways. That's a, a sweet passage. Thanks for reading that. No, I, I loved it. Um, but this kind of reduction to of you know of sex to uh, to bodily fluids. I'm, I'm sorry. There's something to that, and 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 I think that you pointed that out in a very enlightening way. Like, can we kind of get over it? It's not. Um, you know, it's part of our it's part of our beings, um, and I think that, that, yeah. that also was very healthy. Um, I'd like to just yeah. touch on I'd like to touch touch on what's happened to you, your evolution, which I also admire. 
um, you know, you've talked about end of life and the quality of end of life and how it is impacted by sexuality because, you know, whether or not you can express your sexuality, whether it's unconventional or not, and some people can't find it conventionally. And so what happens to them at the end of life? And you've taken on some serious, um, you know, here, the, the, the two things that we can't talk plainly about are sex and death. Um, and so now you've been blogging in this week in the wake of Kobe Bryant's death. You write that there are no perfect victims and none of us is equal to the worst thing we've done. I, I just wondered what's the evolution for you, uh, Dr. Wood, as you move forward through these extraordinarily sensitive subjects? Well, one of the things I've become really committed to is the idea that we need to be better at talking to healthcare providers about our sexuality and our family members about our sexuality for exactly the reason that you're highlighting in that passage that you were looking at, because without openness around these things, we're going to find ourselves facing death with the potential loss of a very important part of our lives and ourselves. And that's an incredible injustice. So that is a commitment that I definitely feel much stronger about since the writing of the book and since watching what my mother went through. I mean, it was an incredible gift that she got to have Kenny there with her so much of the time. And that wouldn't have been the case in many families. Mm-hmm. And had she had to spend more of her time in rehab facilities, it wouldn't have been the case for her even with family support because many kinds of rehab facilities are not set up for overnight guests and they don't approve of sexual relationships all the time. And family members can be a big part of that. So I feel really strongly committed to working on those issues. The, um, the passage you read about Kobe Bryant, I'm, I feel like that's a very different set of issues, but also one I'm very committed to. And that has more to do with the way that as a society, we tend to, particularly after people die, we tend to either make them angels or demons, and mostly we make them angels. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, we can't possibly reflect honestly on their lives, and it makes it harder for us to reflect on the lives of the people that we still live with. Right. So that I, is, I, I think, think, a really important theme to continue talking about. It's it's huge, and it's seminal, and I'm so glad that you've taken it on. We've just got a brief moment left. I just want to tell you that your resolution and healing through this book that you've shared it is so wonderful. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest today, Elizabeth Ann Wood, author of Bound. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Be well. Thank you. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.